Welcome to Coaching the Coach. I'm your host, Pete Townley, for the Upstate Performance Project. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. We are talking about data, data collection, all of that fun stuff. Sounds kind of boring right off the top, but it has... Uh, a good tie-in to a couple things we've been, been discussing on the last couple podcasts. When when I was mentioning the other day about, um, I, I quoted a study that was talking about uh, how trainers perceive um, and use the the data and, and information that they collect. You know, so. Whether that be going to a seminar or going to a um, a webinar online, or you know, uh, reading a book or just talking with other mentors, um, however they get that information, you know, we talked about some of the troubles that they have implementing that, and it's disseminating it to other people, um, or it just doesn't fit right at that time, and so it's just a timing thing. Um, and so we talked about all these things in the, in the sense that you know you, you do need to you know research and study and collect data and use research to help you and you know find research that does support what you're trying to do. But at the same time, one thing I forgot to mention, I may have mentioned it briefly, but I forgot to talk about. But I wanted to bring it up today because it, it fits with what we talked about yesterday uh, or in the in the last podcast which is, um, is the data even relevant? So I use for the majority of the studies that I like to read, and not all of them, but I would definitely say the majority, I use the Journal of Strength and Conditioning from the NSCA. Why? Because I have a subscription with my membership there, and I get good information from it. Uh, They have a lot of pertinent studies that do give me quality information that I can use. Now, there are, also, there are also a lot of studies in there that, you know, study uh, creatine levels in, you know, elementary school age or, you know, pre-adolescent badminton players, you know. And, and all those, although that's an interesting study and it can, you can read the, through the study, read the methods and see it's reliable and valid. And then you can look at the practical application sections and kind of understand how you might use that data. You know, those are all useful things. But if you find data that that you're then having to stretch to kind of fit your purpose and need, it's not really finding good, you know, evidence for that. So, um, Whenever you're building a new program, and then when once you have the program and you collect data, that's when the data has to be relevant to what it is that you're doing, and that should make sense. But you know, a lot of times we go to studies or stu- seminars, and we we hear these you know <clears throat> esteemed scientists in our field studying all this great stuff and. They give great information and they make valid arguments and, the, and their research is good, but what they, what they studied may not help us directly. And I, and I understand that a lot of these studies that get published 
are for a specific purpose. There's a drug company that needs, you know, a supplement tested, or there's, um, you know, a team, a school that has been tasked to, to test something. And so we're, we as exercise physiologists are the people that will go study that. Now, in my PhD studies, I realized that I don't really want to be a researcher. I thought I kind of did, um, but I, it's, not, it's not something that, that truly interests me. I mean, it is interesting to run studies, and, and I did enjoy that when I was teaching. But what we did, a lot of the time, we did one of two things in my classes. I taught a practical applications class for XFIS, or the XFIS lab, as we would call it. And, and what we did a lot of times, because I didn't have the ability to do uh, blood collection, so there wasn't a lot of that allowed. Now, we, we could do a little bit of it at the neighboring hospital, um, and we had some th sometimes set up for that, but we really didn't do a whole lot of that while I was there. Um, and it just was time and money. But one of the things that we tried to do in the classes that I taught was to... To, to review some of these studies, like from the journals, some of the stuff that's being put out there, and see if we could replicate those studies. So, like one of the things uh, I, re I remember, we read a, an article um, from the strength conditioning, and I, I wish I could pull it up and reference. I was looking for it this morning to try to find it, and I, I just couldn't find which issue it was. It was several years ago, probably 2012 or 13. But the, the study talked about uh, EMG activity during the squat um, and, and squat depth and, you know, what what muscles are active at what stage. And, you know, we, we know just from previous studies and, and, and what makes sense during, you know, just viewing the squat, what muscles should be, you know, extending or flexing, uh, stabilizing at different parts of the squat. But it was it was definitely um, you know one of these articles that was pro proposing that squatting to a deeper depth was more beneficial for the fact in this in this particular study was to engage the hamstrings more and not be as quad dominant, therefore not creating muscle imbalances, therefore reducing your risk of injuries, particularly to the hamstring during explosive exercises like sprinting or jumping. So if you're an athlete or if you, you know, are going to be doing explosive type movements, squatting to a deeper depth was beneficial. Now there's been other studies, particularly with sprinting, that talk about squatting to only a, you know, like a quarter depth. Because They've measured the angles of the quad in the in the hips, and there's never a time where going deep deeper than that is beneficial. So, what we would say is, we could use a full depth squat in our off season training to just gain general strength. But when we move into our preseason phase, we might switch it to more of a um, quarter squat um, in this in the hope that we don't fatigue, we don't put any undue unnecessary strain on the knees while we're in our sprinting competitions or right before in the in the couple months the preseason leading up to that um, but we would also be remiss if we didn't mention that if we did that that's not to say that we're not training the hamstrings we would be training the hamstrings separately now we would probably train the train the hamstrings separately anyways even if we were squatting to full depth 
But in the off season, I would squat full depth, front squats and back squats. And preseason, like I said, I might make some adjustments on, on the depth of the squat uh, for the purpose of saving the knees. But my uh, thought being, no, not necessarily to save the knees. I, I said that out loud and then I was like, that's not really why. It's more about being more sports specific um, is, is, is what I should say. Um, and, but I would definitely pair that with a lot of hamstring work, a lot of dedicated hamstring work. So the thought is we're not saying that quarter squats are better than deep squats. We're just saying that as you change something and take out something, so we're, we're, we're putting less emphasis on the hamstring in that quarter squat. There is a little bit of extension at the top end, uh, of hip extension at the top end of that range of motion where the hamstrings involved. So we're not taking the hamstrings completely out of it. But that stabilizing factor when we go down into a, a full depth squat is not there in the quarter squat. So you'd have to train your hamstrings separately. So there's data to support both, right? And so what is it that you're trying to accomplish? So I just mentioned for me, when, I'm, when I, we looked at a study like that in my, when I was teaching, we wanted to replicate that. So we put the EMGs on the quads, on the hamstrings, the glutes, and we had them squat. And you could definitely see when we went to a full depth squat, or and our, our definition was below parallel, um, we we got more hamstring activation than, than when we did. So that very, very quick um, analysis that we see we saw on our, our EMG replications was was backing up what the study said. Yes, there is more hamstring in, involvement. And so we could then, you know, kind of confirm or at least see in real time you know, what the researchers saw in that study. So that was a really good teaching tool. But for us, it also led us to the discussion that what is it that we're trying to solve? Are we trying to figure out what the best squat is? Are quarter squats really better for athletes than deep squats? Okay, that was the question. And again, my answer was no, not necessarily. If I had to pick something, I would pick a full depth squat all day, every day, but there are scenarios, like I mentioned earlier, where when we get into sport-specific stuff, particularly in the preseason phase of training, I would then put in a quarter squat in that example. But it would be with dedicated hamstring training as well. So they would go together. So anyhow, that's that's what I mean by is the data, you know, applicable, right? So we we wanted to see that, but we also used uh, data. And we also use these studies, or, well, data, I guess, to answer questions, right? So we wanted to check validity of studies. We wanted to make sure that, you know, what we were reading made sense. It made sense to us on paper. It made sense to us in our minds. And then we could test it and like, yeah, that does make sense. And for me as a researcher or an exercise physiologist, that's the kind of research I like doing. That really quick, practical, it may not be 100% super scientific, um, you know, in the lab with, you know, tons of subjects, but if I read something, I want to try to replicate it. And in my class setting, that was a great way to do that, it's particularly with a limited budget and a limited amount of equipment that we had at a small university. But then the other piece was to answer questions. And I think this is the biggest thing that I want to talk about today. So when we're trying to answer questions that are out there about training, you know, there's research out there that could answer those questions. And so we want to look for data that's going to help us. 
So when we go to seminars and we read new journal articles and we um, hear other people talking about things, that's all useful information. But that's not necessarily going to be information that you all of a sudden take in, reject what you've been thinking or doing, and and start using that. And that's one of the pitfalls of you know change. Change <clears throat> as far as the field goes. I mentioned in the last podcast about this, two podcasts ago, about how that affects the educational field or education field in the sense that there's competing philosophies on how to design curriculum and there could be competing philosophies within an organization you know the the superintendent and the principals are all on board but the teachers aren't or a few of the teachers aren't and so how that can uh, stymie progress or or not disseminate the information as well as some people might want so in this case you know answering questions is it's all about what are you trying to accomplish in your training in your programs so if I've got a program that that I want to do, so for example, when I put together my Power Plus Speed, Power, and Agility program uh, back in 2007, actually late 2006, but we started, the first session was in 07, and I ran that for seven, eight years while I was still in Kansas, and then I've run it here uh, out of Upstate Performance Project the last couple years. Um, I ran it at the Y for a summer. But it's a program that I designed long ago and I went and looked up lots of data to support the type of exercises I was having them do, the number of reps I was having them do. Um, you know, there would be times where we would do only a certain amount of plyometrics and they weren't sweating. They weren't like, um, you know, dying. But I knew from research that there were a certain amount of, you know, contacts, you know, ground contacts that that level of athlete, that age of athlete, or that training age of the athlete could handle in certain plyometrics. So, you know, whether that's 80 jumps or 100 jumps or ground contacts or whatever, I had to limit that. So sometimes they got done, they're like, oh, that's it? I'm like, yep, we, we accomplished what we needed to accomplish that day. Doing more was just going to overwork them or be mindless extra work just for the sake of being hard. And that wasn't, that's not important. That's not what we want. And that's what the research told me. And when I started listening to that, rather than saying, oh man, I've got I've to make these athletes leave here dying every day, you know, my training got better. So I found data to kind of support what I thought and what I had read in my, in my um, studies. And then I went out and found research to support that. So, you know, again, you have the textbook and the textbook says X, Y, and Z. And if you take that just blindly and follow that it's probably going to be okay because it probably wouldn't be in the textbook if it wasn't backed up however it doesn't hurt to follow those references that are in the book and then go read some of those studies and that leads you down a wormhole but you, what you do is whenever you roll out your programs so if you have a you know boot camp in the park which you know how i feel about the word boot camp um but if you have something like that that you're trying to get started that's great but when you put out your research or put out your promotional materials, you don't have to sit and do long quotes and boring quotes about research articles, but you should have that. And so if you have a website and you say, if you want more information, here's the research I got um, uh, for my program. And so they can go and say, oh, okay, these, these exercises they put together for our little workout in the park is actually 
very scientifically put together. So there's research to back it up. And that just makes your program seem more valid and reliable. And it makes you seem more like an expert because you are. So it's great. I love, I love, I love the data. But one of the things that it stems from is asking questions. Right? So you have to ask yourself those questions. What is it that I'm trying to accomplish? And what kind of data do I need to support that? Because you're, you know, as well as I do, you can find research that supports and detracts from whatever it is that you're trying to do. So if you find a bunch of articles that are detracting from what you're trying to do and the research that's in favor of it is not as reliable and not as, so maybe what you're trying to do has been proven not so great. So you might have to run a few experiments. And that by experiments, I mean some trial runs with your program. And if you're not getting the results you think you should be getting, then you look at, is, is it my programming? Uh, is it just not right? Like the data may have suggested? Or is it my athletes didn't really buy in? I didn't coach well? There's a lot of variables, of course. So, you know, it may not be able to hit the nail on the head after one trial. But the idea is you have to ask those questions and then go seek out data to support that. But look at stuff that takes away and then review that data and say, well, it's only taking away because of, you know, there was two, two people in their study as opposed to a thousand in this one that supported my idea. So those all things have to be considered. Um, but a great example of this was um, when I was teaching, I had a volleyball player, uh, Nicole, and she was one of our starters, you know, uh, stud volleyball player. And she said, we were talking, this is actually in a biomechanics class and a kinesiology. Sorry, I had to take a sip of my kombucha, suja, organic kombucha, mixed berry. Very good, very tasty. Um, but she asked a question in class and she said, hey, my high school coach taught me to serve this way with my arm when I go overhead to come straight down the body. My college coach is now telling me that I want to come across my body. And she's like, I serve, I, she's like, I can serve decently both ways. She's like, I don't have a problem doing either one. She's like, I feel better coming across my body, but I had success when I went straight down. And so does it even matter? Or, you know, why would one coach say one way and why would one coach say the other way? Well. Here's the thing, at, right off the bat, I have no idea, right, at that time. I was like, well, my thought, my initial thought was, okay, well, if I'm coming across my body, maybe I'm getting more oblique involvement, just more musculature in general, more of a trunk rotation, so I'm getting maybe more torque on the ball, and therefore I can hit it harder. Okay, but does that necessarily mean accurate? You know, who knows? I'm not a volleyball player, but that was that was my first thought, and that was kind of where she was going with that. So the first question is, is there actually more ab involvement during that? So what do we do? We grabbed those electrodes. We took the whole class into the gym. Uh, volleyball net was up. We hooked her up because it was her idea. And we had her, you know, uh, serve a few balls one way and serve a few balls the other way. And we could clearly see there was more EMG activity in the abdominal region when she brought the ball across her body, which makes perfect sense. Now, was that the reason, though, that there was more, um, uh, or was that the reason why coach wanted us to come across the body? One thing we never did do was go ask the coach, why did you, uh, 
why do you teach it this way? That probably would have been a really good idea. Um, and uh, one, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm kind of kind of mad at myself for not doing, right? But at the same time, we also did not or were not able to track the velocity of the ball. She felt she was hitting it harder, but we, we visually couldn't tell a, a difference and we didn't slow it down and, and film it, you know, like slow-mo, which we probably could have and gotten a better view of, is it actually traveling faster off the hand? Uh, we could have done that with the technology we had, um, but that would have been the next step. Okay, so she had a question and we were able to then kind of very, very rudimentarily, rudimentarily, <laughs> very uh, uh, basically uh, replicate or create in this case uh, a scenario in which we saw well there is more ab involvement and if there's more ab involvement i can infer that there's more torque more power being generated to the ball therefore it probably is going a little bit faster now again we didn't full you know follow that all the way out uh that was proposed to her for her research project i, I don't know if she well i do know she did not end up doing that she did some other stuff which was great but that was that was an example of a question comes up well heck i don't know the answer i think i know the answer i have a good guess let's go test it and that's kind of the idea of of data collection now going back to the very beginning of this podcast and the in the original thought process here is whenever whenever you have a program that you're trying to put together collecting data to support what you're trying to do is very important um so you do your research. You find out that this this type of training is supported. It's it's shown to be good. Blah 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 blah. So you pick these exercises. You put things together. You train it the right way. Then you collect the data from your training, and you see are people getting better? Are we tracking the right way? All of these different things. So when I was talking about going back to, or yesterday um, <clears throat> when I talked about I'm building this tracker. That's similar to, you know, Wattify, Train Heroic, uh, in the sense that, you know, we'll be able to put our programming on there and it'll track what we want, but it's going to be specific to my class, to the TBF class. And, and what we're looking at is data in that class that will be useful for that class. So I, I'll be able to track a lot of things. And what's going to be important for us to track? Obviously, are people getting stronger? Are they their cardiovascular? Uh, fitness getting better, um, you know, they're getting more flexible, more powerful. We can track all that. Uh, tonnage, um, you know, we'll be able to track, you know, how much volume uh, in pounds that they're lifting, and, and we can compare that with other data. So, you know, some people have the um, the whoop. Um, some people have other monitors that can track, you know, heart rate variability. They they bring all this data in, but are they going to use it? And is it going to be used the right way? And is it actually useful for them? They can use it the right way, and they can get the data. But then, are they using the data to do exactly what it says? So, if I have a day that's a high high volume day, and you didn't get a lot of rest and recovery, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we we change how we train that day. We don't not train. We just change how we train, right? So all of the I guess all of the things that are in our parameters or in our capabilities of collecting isn't all useful for us. So the data that I'm going to collect and that I'm going to put into the mobile site are going to be things that our 
clients can look at and see. And on the back end, Tony, Jeff, Chelsea, and I are going to collect data like um, RPE and, and all these other things to help progress the class, to help change the class. Now, with our online personal training clients, we do this as well. So we track their their um, rate of perceived exertion and we track some other things so that we can make coaching changes or coaching suggestions because we're not there when they train, right, on these online clients. Now, in the class, because it's not one-on-one -on -one training, it's group training, we still want it to have an individualized approach. So I need to collect data that's going to give my coaches the ability to look at a, a week or, you know, if, if Tony has a strength phase plan and we look at it, do we get stronger? Yes, but our, our in conditioning completely fell off. Well, that's not necessarily what we want. We want to maintain and keep progressing. So we'll be able to use this data for ourselves. But then the data, so I guess what I'm saying is there's two separate walls here. There's the client wall that they're going to get data that they can see their progress. They can see if, how they're reaching their goals. They can see where they are and where they stand. Um, but we're going to see you know, things like how it's affecting them. And so we've chosen to collect data that way because it's useful for us. And what we did, or what I did with Chelsea, is we sat down and we looked at a lot of research studies to say, okay, when I do a conditioning workout and I'm using this rest work rest ratio uh, and how I design what I'm doing in my conditioning versus what the main lift of the day was and how we pair these together during you know a uh, uh, off season phase or a you know a uh, strength phase versus a preseason you know skill based uh, type phase, we're going to make different changes for our class based on that. And that's going to help make our programming even more accurate and more uh, beneficial for the people that come. So that being said, I want you guys to think about, you know, any programs that you're thinking about putting together. Or if you're doing a program, what is it that you're trying to measure? What is being measured? What are the parameters? Then that's the data that you want to go look. Okay, so Pete has me doing, say... Um, Here's one. Uh, one of my favorite styles of, of, of programming is, is a functional hypertrophy style. So Pete has me doing front squats for tempo, immediately followed by back squats for tempo at the same weight for more reps. Immediately followed, or well, with a small rest period, then followed by you know something for the hamstrings, like an RDL or a glute ham raise. So why, why is he putting that together? Well, you could probably go find articles and research that would explain just that. So you could figure out the answers. Why are you doing what you're doing? Now, I'll sit and tell you. So if you are training with me and I, and I do have that program written out for you, you probably already know why because I've told you why. But the, the thought is if you are reading something, you can go find data that will, that will explain and look at data that supports and detracts from that and kind of you're able to, to deduce that. But when you're designing a program, you want to have want to find data that supports what you're doing because that makes your program more valid and reliable. Seem you'll seem more credible. And then the data that you collect and the data that you then give to your clients has to be useful data. It, you know, we can have all the things, all the data in the world, but if we don't know how to use it, then what, what's the point in even collecting it? It's cool and it looks neat, 
but are we actually using it? And if you don't know how to use the data that you're collecting, well, you've got two options there. You can, you know, read, find an article. You can uh, reach out to someone like myself or Chelsea or Jeff, Tony, Casey. You know, if you, if you have questions, go ask someone, hey, I want to use this data. Or this is giving me all this great information. How do I actually sit down and figure out what is useful for me and what's not? Because you may not even know. And, and I'm talking to you as coaches and, and you listeners who are, who are members and clients and, and just active individuals. The data that you collect on yourself or the data that your coach collects for you, or if you're a coach collecting data, what is it that you're going to do with that data? And if you're not going to use it and don't need it, if it's just for bells and whistles, then it's really not necessary. And, and find what you need because that's what's going to make your program better and that's what's going to make your program, um, uh, I guess, more elite, more effective because it's it's pinpointing exactly what you're trying to accomplish and you can read that data in real time and make adjustments on the fly. All right, that's all I have for today. Coming in right under 30 minutes. I've been pretty good about that lately. Proud of myself. All right, have a good one.